0: Uh, If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 12. We are continuing in this series, walking through the, the book of Acts, looking at the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and the early church. And What we're praying is that as we walk through this book of the Bible, that God would do in us what we see in these pages of Scripture. That we would be a church like the early church. That the things that we see God doing in them, God would do in this body, in this family. And I'm thankful for what we've learned in my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, is that these would not just be more knowledge that we gain about a book and information, but that God would change us, that God would change our church, God would change you, change your family. And God would use this body of believers... To live lives unleashed with the gospel, living on mission in all of life, everywhere we go, and that God would use this place to rock the world with the gospel. That's what we're praying would happen. And we're going to continue to look through uh, God's word as we get into chapter 12. Before we do, I just want to say um, a word of thanks. Uh, to use a family. I, I've gotten to spend uh, 10 days over the last couple weeks with a group of our students who are serving on mission in Denver, Colorado, Portland, Oregon working with church plants there, Summit Church who Derek and Kayla will be partnering with when they move there uh, next year and then Remedy City people out of this church, five families among others who've gone to take the gospel to hard places in the U.S. and that wouldn't be possible without your generosity for those of you who give regularly to to give to go, and to this body of faith, you make it possible for teenagers and college students to get to go and learn about church planning, to share the gospel, to encourage local churches, and it was just a blessing for me to get to be a part of that, and that wouldn't be possible without you, so thank you. And I also just want to encourage you too, uh, these, this week and these weeks are really important in the life of our body. Um, as we go into August, this is a critical time where we kind of talk about who we are and what God has called us to be. And we know everybody's kind of getting back to school and vacations are ending, all those things going on. I just want to encourage you to lean in uh, over the next few days and weeks if, if you call this your home and you're a member here. Uh, today even we've got to celebrate deacons and the gift that God has given them to us as the church Uh, Later this afternoon, we're going to be having an information meeting at the Johnson City campus at 4 o'clock. Talking about what God is doing there. And I would encourage you, if you live in Johnson City, if you work there, if your kids go to school there, to come to that meeting. To hear how we're trying to serve the community and to really pray, God, what would you have me do? What's the part I would play Or maybe you don't live in Johnson City, but you just want to be open and feel like God might be leading you to step out of your comfort zone on mission through our church in ways you haven't before. Come be a part of that. So we're praying how God can help um, take us to people in Johnson City who don't know Him. And I go on and on, things like team night, Uh, Things like Parent Connect or Next Sunday for those of you who are moms and dads, caregivers, where we talk about how we invest in the next generation. You want to be here both hours and and so many different things. So just lean in, know what's going on, be a part of all that's happening so that you can find your place and you can be encouraged in your faith and you can live on mission through this church that God has called you to. So Acts chapter 12, I just want to pray for us again um, and we're going to dive right in. Lord, we love you, and I ask that the things that we just sang, that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are child, child children of God. Lord, I pray that would be true. pray that we wouldn't be slaves to fear for the things that we are facing, that we are walking through, that we would see who we are in Christ, for those of us who are believers. I pray that that grace, that lavishing, overflowing grace, flows from Jesus to us would be on display this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for this church that, as your word says, that as the early church grew in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I pray that over my brothers and sisters. This morning, their fear of you would grow. Their awe of you would grow. Their wonder of you would grow. And their comfort in the Holy Spirit resting in you would grow. And through that, this church would multiply and many would come to know you in saving faith. And it's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to jump into Acts chapter 12. We're going to read uh, this chapter, it's not a long chapter. And this is kind of a shift in the book of Acts. We've seen kind of the first section, which has been the start of the early church and what Jesus said would happen, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, has been happening and the ends of the earth are starting to happen. The second half of the book focuses more on that. And we've seen a lot about the apostles and Peter and and what's happening there. This is the last chapter Uh, where Luke focuses on the Jerusalem church, on the apostles, on Peter. Starting in chapter 13, the focus begins to shift to the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. And what's going to be happening is the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And so as we begin to look at this passage, it's just important to know that and to know the context uh, is suffering And it's always hard uh, to be able to get up and open God's word and talk about pain and talk about suffering and talk about opposition. But that's where the text takes us this morning. But it's not just a message of opposition to the gospel, it's a message of hope. And one of the things that are true for every single believer that if you treasure Jesus Christ, if your joy is found in him, if he is your life, you will face opposition. You will face opposition. I will face opposition. As a church, we will face opposition. But for those who are rooted and grounded in loving Jesus, opposition is not an end, but it's a means to an end, and that end is the glory of God. Opposition becomes a megaphone of hope, and we're going to see that in this passage. Let's just read it together, starting in verse 1. About that time, so last week we talked about the famine that was happening in the land, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This isn't the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This is his grandson. Verse 2, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, which means he was intending to execute Peter as well. So this is a bleak moment. There was persecution after Stephen's death. Saul was ravaging the church, but then God saved Saul. And as far as we know, there's a little season of peace. But now Herod, this king who represents the Jews and the Roman empires beginning to bring persecution back. And for the first time in the history of the church, one of the apostles is killed. He's martyred for his faith, James, the brother of John. Jesus had prophesied that this would happen in the Gospels. He, when James and John asked in his right hand and left hand and Jesus asked them, are you willing to drink of this cup? And they said, yes, he said, you will drink of the same cup that I drink. And now Jesus' promise is coming true. And the first apostle dies and is martyred. And he's not replaced like Judas was. Judas betrayed Jesus. He failed and so he had to be replaced. James wasn't replaced because he fulfilled his service. And I I think that's the call for every believer. That when we get to the end, whenever the end is, that we would faithfully fulfill the service that God has called us to on this earth. And James does that. Now Peter, another key leader in the church, has been thrown into jail. So you can imagine what the early church is feeling. James has been executed. Peter's about to be executed. God, what are you doing? What's happening? And look at what the church does. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They don't run away. They don't ask why. They don't reject God. What do they do? They run to God. In opposition, in suffering, in persecution, in pain, true believers, those who treasure Christ, don't run from God. They run to God with their pain. We see that happening. But in this bleak moment, there's hope. So Let's Read through the rest of this chapter. Now when Herod was about to bring him, Peter, out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. So he's got the prisoner to his right, and his left, outside the door, 16 altogether. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Anybody in here a heavy sleeper in the room? Like it's hard for you to wake up. Anybody in here not a morning person? Okay, a few of you. I'm not a morning person. This is me in the morning. And so Peter thinks he's asleep. He thinks he's seeing a vision. So much so, the angel has to tell him what to do put on your shoes, put on your belt. Put on your cloak. Uh, This is how I am a lot of times in the mornings. At least this is what my wife tells me. You know, coffee is a gift, the grace of God. And Peter didn't have any. So he thinks he's still asleep. He doesn't know what's happening. In fact, it's a rescue. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading to the city, and it opened of its own accord. So miracles, chains falling off walking by guards. They're not waking up. They come to a gate. The gate just opens. These iron doors open on their own. God is performing a miracle on behalf of Peter and the church, answering their prayers. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he realized what was actually happening, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. When Peter realized what was going on, he knew the source. Jesus had rescued him. And he has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And John Mark would become a significant character. The story goes on. Where many were gathered together and they were praying. So while Peter is in the jail about to be executed, the church is gathered in homes praying for him. Verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she forgot she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So it's kind of a humorous story what's going on. Rhoda realizes it's Peter. She's so excited she forgets to let him in the house. So he's standing out there in the middle of the night, continuing the knock on the door while she's going to tell everyone else. And so she reported that he was standing there. In verse 15, they said to her, You are out of your mind. You're a crazy girl. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It must be an angel. So she's telling him it's Peter. The people in the room saying, You're out of your mind. You're crazy. You need some coffee. It's too late. They don't know what's going on. It must be an angel. It must be his ghost. They don't even believe what's happening. In verse 16, poor Peter, he's out there. But Peter continues knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter... And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. And they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So he's setting himself up as a deity before them. Verse 22, and the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not of man. The voice of a God, not of men. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Amen. Right? Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So there's a lot in this passage that's happening. But the beginning, we see suffering, we see opposition, we see persecution. But through that, we see God's hope and God's rescue step in. And so, what I want us to think about, what I want us to see this morning, is, is this truth. And the truth is this where Jesus is treasured, opposition becomes a megaphone of hope. Where Jesus is treasured, opposition becomes a megaphone of hope. So when we love Jesus, when he is our treasure, when he is our delight, when he is our Lord, when he is our Savior, and we live for him, opposition is going to come. It's inevitable. Jesus promised, he said, if if they persecuted me this way, they will also persecute you. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to to Timothy, his son in the faith, that all who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. It's, It's coming for you, it's coming for us as a church. If you live for Jesus, if you treasure Christ, opposition and persecution are coming. If there is no opposition to your faith, and to your witness, then it means you're not treasuring Christ. I'm not treasuring Christ. We recognize that's different here than it is in different parts of the world, but when we stand for Jesus and we proclaim the truth of the gospel, we will be marginalized. We will be rejected. We will be spoken against. We will be excluded. People will call us intolerant and then will be intolerant toward us. It will happen. It is the way. But in that moment, in the opposition, in the rejection, in those things, the suffering, the persecution, that is when the gospel can go out. That's when the gospel can be seen in your life and my life. And we see that happen here in this passage. And so what I want us to do this morning and the time we have left is just to walk through this text and look at kind of the reality of the opposition that we face. Some of the types of opposition. How do we respond to opposition when it comes because of our faith? Now what is the resolve underneath the opposition that we see in Peter in the early church? How can we be megaphones of hope when we face opposition for the name of Jesus Christ? So here's the first thing I want us to look at. The reality of Opposition. So in in verses 1 through 4, we see Herod and we see the Jews and we see these people who are persecuting the early church. And so when we face opposition, I I think it's important to know the types of opponents that we can and we will face. And the first one is spiritual opponents. That every battle against the name of Jesus Christ is ultimately a spiritual battle. Amen? Amen. I think sometimes we forget this, that in the West, in the church, we kind of see conflict, and we see persecution, we see different things, we see it as a person against a person, and we forget that we have an enemy. When you go to proclaim the name of Jesus, there's an enemy who is against that name, and he wants to stop you, and he wants to stop me, and he wants to stop this church from spreading the gospel, Paul say this in Ephesians 6, 10-12, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's saying we have an enemy. That enemy longs to steal, to kill, and destroy you and me and our faith. And so when we face opposition, there's a root to the opposition. Herod's not just being violent and killing people just because he hates Christians. He's being violent and killing people because there's spiritual warfare going on. There are evil influences in his life going on. We need to be aware of that. As we praise the people of God, we need to pray against the enemy as Jesus commanded us to. But not only is there spiritual opposition, there's there's direct opposition. And that opposition, it comes from other people. Here in this passage, in verses 1 and 2, we see Herod named. We see the Jews or the Jewish leaders. They're, They're named, they're opponents to the gospel. Earlier, we saw Saul before he was converted as an opponent to the gospel. And in this world, we will face people who are opponents to the gospel. And we have two different ways of looking at them. One is to be mad, frustrated, angry with them. Another way is to have compassion on them. And this is what Jesus told us to do, right? How do we respond to our enemies? We, we turn the other cheek. We, we love our enemies. When we were in Portland um, one night with, with our students, we were in an area that was a really rough part of town and the group was a little nervous and, you know, we were fine and safe and, and got back and all that kind of stuff. Parents are in the room, nothing major happened. You know, only a couple of kids got kidnapped and we brought, no, I'm just kidding, nothing happened. Um, but we we're, you know, just nervous. We we're in a different place in the town and we were talking about it afterwards and we had this conversation and, and just said to the group, listen, it doesn't bother me that darkness acts like darkness. What bothers me is when people who profess to be of the light act like darkness. People who are blind to the gospel will be against the gospel. They cannot help themselves. And they might be directly opposed in a way like Herod, or they might just be not understanding of the gospel. I've had two conversations written recently, gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And they have both said, I like Jesus. And then the next phrase they'll say, I just believe he's one of many ways. And you see the contradiction there, right? You can't love Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except for me. And believe there are many ways. It, it can't happen. We live in that culture that they want to like Jesus, but they want to be spiritual in their own way. And the reason they do that is because they don't know any better. And with both of those people, and I could tell you their stories, my heart broke for them because they just don't see the truth. But isn't that true of us all? Do you remember who you were before Jesus saved you? You were blind. I was blind, I didn't know, I couldn't see. And so the opponents that we face in this world, there is a spiritual war, spiritual conflict, but then the opponents within this world, they're they're blind to the truth, suppress the truth, they can't see it, and so our hearts need to be filled with compassion for them. But there's a third type of opponent, and that's the internal opponents. And when we look at this passage you don't see them here. The internal opponents are those within the church. And I think one of the things that just blows my mind as I read this chapter and I've read through the first half of Acts as we've been going it together is that there's no conflict within the church. But as you go on into the New Testament epistles again and again Peter and Paul and others will say do not slander, do not gossip, obey your leaders, Fight for unity. Do not teach false doctrine. Correct, reprove. And so somewhere between here and Acts 12 and what happens later in these new churches is the opponents begin to rise within. And brothers and sisters, one of the most dangerous opponents we face is within. And I'm not just talking about next to you, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. That because of pride and sin and arrogance and selfishness, if not careful we will begin to stand against the things of the faith for our own preferences. Apostle Paul warns us of this in um, Hebrews 13, 17. He says this, To us, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, For that would be no advantage to you. Why say let them do this with joy, not groaning? He says don't give them cause to groan. (laughs) Fight for unity. Love the body. Fight for faith. Lay down your preferences. Lay down your comfort. Fight for the things that matter. I just want to encourage you as a faith family. Guard your heart. Guard your souls. We go into August and we talk about a lot of different things happening to life our church. Family discipleship and study groups and life groups and being connected in community and being a part of the gathering and consistent here and three names and who we're sharing the gospel with. In those moments, there's going to be an opportunity for pride. There's going to be an opportunity for disunity to well up in our hearts because we don't like something or something gets pushed on. I just want to encourage you in that moment, kill that. Pursue the mission, pursue what's faithful, fight for what's there. And we see in the early church that there's not the disunity that's there. They are all for Christ and they are laying down their all. May that be true of us. So we see the reality that there is opposition. It's opposition from spiritual powers. There's opposition from those who do not know Christ. And there can be opposition from within. And we pray against that. But secondly, what I want us to look at is the response to opposition. So if you are treasuring Christ, how do you respond when opposition comes? How can your life be a megaphone of hope to a lost and dying world in the midst of opposition? Here are several ways I think we see modeled in the early church. The first one is this. When we face opposition, choose to see suffering as a gift. Choose to see suffering as a gift. Look at verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. The church didn't reject God. They didn't reject the suffering. They just ran to God. They saw suffering as a gift. How do we know that? Well, earlier on in Acts 5, verse 40, Peter and the apostles says this, And When they called in the apostles, they, being the Pharisees, beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer I'm just going to be really honest with you, when, when I face opposition and hardship, I'm usually not seeing it as a gift, but it is, because we get to share in the sufferings that Jesus suffered, because opposition and suffering validate and prove that we are actually disciples of Jesus Christ. If you have doubts about your faith, doubts about who you are in Christ, one of the ways that we can know we're in Christ is when we stand for Christ, we face persecution. Another gift that suffering is to us is suffering is a means of sanctification. It's a means of us becoming like Jesus. So when we get taken to the bottom and we go through hardship, it forces us to run to God. It forces us to cling to the cross. And that is a gift in that moment. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon would say it this way, I've learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. That whatever hardship you walk through, if it forces you to Christ, it is a gift in your life. It's a means of God's grace in your life. And so to see it as a gift, to thank God for his goodness even in the hardship. Here's a second thing, a second way we can respond that makes our lives a megaphone of hope. That's to choose to fear God instead of man. In the midst of opposition, choose to fear God instead of man. Choose to live for an audience of one instead of an audience of many. We see Peter contrasted against Herod. Peter is living for God. Peter is not denying his faith. Early on in chapter 10 with Cornelius, Peter um, was approached by Cornelius and this is what happened in verse 25. says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted Cornelius up saying, stand up, I am to a man. What's happening here? Peter's getting revered because of what God's doing through him. What does Peter say? Don't worship me, worship God. This needs to be our approach, brothers and sisters, as opposed to Herod. Why did he throw Peter in prison? Why did he kill James? Because it made the Jews happy. He's living for the approval of men, not the approval of God. Later on, why is he struck down and killed by the angel? Because they are worshiping him as a God, and instead of him giving glory to God, he was giving glory to himself. Again, brothers and sisters, this is a warning. One of the temptations that you and I face every single day is to lift ourselves up in front of others instead of lifting God up. To put ourselves on the pedestal. To live for the approval of others. To live for the acceptance of others. Even in the midst of hardship and persecution and suffering and loss, it's easy to receive um, the blessing and care and concern of others and make it about ourselves instead of pointing it back to God. But in our suffering and in opposition, when we say, look at Jesus... It makes the Gospel look glorious. When we live for an audience of one instead of an audience of many, who who are you living for today? Who am I living for? In our opposition, we can lift up the name of Christ. Thirdly, another response for us when we face opposition for the sake of the Gospel is that we pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. I love that the first thing the church does is they go to their knees. And we've seen that in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And again and again, one of the reasons why the early church grew and multiplied was because they were on their knees, they were praying, they were seeking God, they were dependent. One of the greatest struggles with the church in the United States, the church in the South, is a lot of times we forget our need. We forget that we are dependent people. We try to live independently. And when opposition comes, one of the ways we become a megaphone of hope to the world is when we run to God in prayer. I've been reading through the Old Testament and in the book of Daniel, I love the story of how Daniel and his, people, his friends constantly again and again they pray, they pray, they pray. And Daniel 6, the story of Daniel and the Lion's Den, there's this edict that's made. You can't pray, you can't worship to any God. And what does Daniel do? goes and he prays the same way he always did one of the things I'm praying for our church is that we become a people who are devoted to prayer it's one of the reasons why over the last couple years we've taken the whole month of January to focus on prayer because we recognize that God cannot do anything through us unless we are dependent upon him when you face opposition when you face trial when you face persecution where do you run what do you run to The church ran to God. And while Peter's being saved by the angel, where's the church? On their knees. May we be that kind of people. Fourthly, how do we respond in a way that magnifies the gospel, that makes us a megaphone of hope? And I love this. We rest in the Savior. Rest in the Savior. Look look again at verse 6. First reading, reading through this passage, I didn't even see this, and going back through it just blew me away. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, centuries before the door, were guarding the prison. If you knew that you were going to lose your life the next day, what would you be doing in your final moments? Guess what Peter was doing? He was sleeping. I don't know about you, but if I knew my life was about to end, I would probably not be sleeping. Why was Peter sleeping? Because his soul was at rest. I think a lot of us suffer from a restless soul. Anxiety, stress, worry, fear, fear, Peter is fully at rest and confident in what God is doing. He doesn't know God's going to save him. He doesn't know an angel's about to come in and shake everything up. He's at rest. And one of the great gifts of God is rest, is sleep. Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxiety and toil. So he's saying, unless God is in it, it's not going to come about. You can get up early and go to bed late. It's not going to come about. It's just anxiety. This is how he ends. He says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep. In Psalm 3, David writes a psalm. He's being chased by Absalom. He's lost his kingdom. There are enemies, thousands of enemies coming to take his life. And the psalm begins in worry and dread. He's calling out to the Lord for rescue. And then he says this in verse 5 I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. What's he saying? I slept and God kept me alive. I will not fear. Do you know when we are most vulnerable? It's when we're asleep. This is what David's saying. I went to bed, my mind shut off, and God kept my lungs going. He kept my blood flowing, and He preserved my life. If my God can preserve my life when I'm asleep and vulnerable, He can save me tomorrow. What are you walking through right now that's keeping you up at night? What stress, what fear, what anxiety, what brokenness has captured your heart this morning, brother or sister? Give it to the one who gives rest. Paul would say it a different way. He who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is what God is saying. If if he laid down the life of his son to save you and rescue you, he can save you today. He holds you today. He holds your anxieties and fears today. And one of the ways we become a megaphone of hope to a watching world is we treasure Christ and we love Jesus so much that when opposition comes, we rest in him. We give it back to him. We trust him with the outcome. And when people see that kind of peace in you and I, it makes no sense. And Jesus is put on display. What are you carrying in this morning? I encourage you, give it to the one who saved your soul. If God can save you from death into life. He can save you from what you're walking through today. He can carry that today. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Turn it over to Him. Lean on Him. For He's good. Lastly, how do we respond in a way that makes the gospel a megaphone of hope through our suffering and opposition? It's this. Rejoice in and regularly share stories of God's faithfulness rejoice in God's faithfulness, and regularly share stories of God's faithfulness. I love in verse 14, Peter gets there, he he knocks on the door, he speaks, and I love the way Rhoda responds. It says, in her joy. I have those three words underlined, in her joy. What does she do? She goes to tell people. And then in verse 17, Peter describes to them how the Lord brought him out of prison, and then what does he say? tell these things to James and to the brothers and sisters. One of the ways that we put God on display through opposition and difficulty is we recount the goodness of what God has done. How many of this room would say that Jesus has rescued you? Show of hands. You have something to rejoice in. Shout it from the rooftop. It might be dark today. Sing of God's faithfulness yesterday. And one of the ways we combat anxiety, we combat fear, we combat worry, we combat difficulty is by worshiping our Savior. I love how Peter is about to be killed and he is sleeping. He's resting in God. I love later on we're gonna see the Apostle Paul and Silas. He's thrown in prison. What's he doing at midnight? He's Singing. In the midst of trial, soul is free. So we can shout, we can sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. You can sing that when you have cancer. You can sing that when you've lost a child. You can sing that when your job's about to end. You can sing that on the deathbed of a loved one. You can sing that going through trouble with a son or daughter. You can sing that being persecuted for your faith. Because it's true. And we have a reason to sing. And we have a song to sing. And in the singing and in the resting and in the proclaiming, Jesus looks glorious because he is. And it doesn't make sense to a watching world. And yet, we get to be that. So we've looked at the reality. We've looked at our response. So let's, what I want to do is end by talking about the resolve to endure. How do you and I have the resolve to endure? To be willing to face opponents. To be willing to walk through hardship. To be willing to face persecution. I think the answer is in verse 11. It says, when Peter came to himself, he said, now, and I have these words underlined, I am sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. Plucked me out of the hand of the enemy king. From the Jews. Who's Peter's confidence in? It's in Jesus. How do we endure opposition. How do we have the resolve to do that? We rest in the finished work of Jesus. We rest in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? So how do we do that? Here's a couple truths to close. First is this, following Jesus is worth every loss because he is the greatest treasure. How do we resolve in our heart to walk through opposition and persecution? It's because we see Jesus as the greatest treasure in the universe. I love the parable Jesus tells about the treasure in the field. And the man, he's just walking along the field. He bumps into this treasure. And it says, with joy, he sells everything that he has to buy the field to gain the treasure. Jesus is the priceless treasure. He's worth our lives. He's worth everything, laying it down to gain Christ. Where the rubber meets the road um, for me personally, a month ago I got to be in Nigeria and teach some classes there, seminary classes. And southern Nigeria, it's half Christian, half Muslim, and just um, overwhelming to see the call of prayer and the thousands of people who are just in utter darkness. But as you go more north into Nigeria, you have radical Islam, the Boko Haram, and all of that, where they're murdering Christians, and burning churches, and kidnapping um, believers. And the people in our class, they, they know those people. They've heard stories. They've seen that. Yet why do they hold to their faith? Because Jesus is the greatest treasure. And in that class, as I was listening to those stories, I'm just, I'm praying, and I'm thinking about myself, and thinking about my family, and I want for me, personally, that Jesus would be my greatest treasure. I want my wife to see that, I want my kids to see that, and I pray that over my family, I pray that over my children, and and this prayer is in my head, and it's the hard one for us to pray, and it's this. I want my children to love Jesus so much that they would treasure Him above all else, and that they would go to hard places like that, and be willing to lay down their lives for the Gospel. What do you treasure today? What do you treasure more than Christ? This is what the Apostle Paul would say. He'd say, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Jesus is everything. He's worth the loss of all things. In Philippians 3, he would say, but whatever gain I have, I count it lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is your greatest treasure this morning? Jesus is worth our lives. And the reason why Peter in James, could face what they face is because Jesus was everything to them. Is He everything to you and to me? I want to invite the band to come up and I want to encourage you not to leave or check out. I've got one more thought I want us to give but as we as we close, I have one more truth that I want us to think about and it's this. We can suffer well because Jesus suffered first. How can we suffer well? How can we be megaphones of hope in the face of opposition? How can we treasure Christ when it means everything? We can suffer well because Jesus suffered first. That God doesn't call us to anything that He did not first do in His own Son. He died for you, He gave His life for your sin. So now we are free to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. One of the things that's so convicting about this passage is when you look at these first few verses, we celebrate that God rescued Peter and he did. Friends, listen. He didn't rescue James. Was James somehow less worthy? No. See, sometimes God stops the mouth of lions. Sometimes he throws us into the lion's den and we're not rescued but He is worthy. and This life is not built on what we have in this world. This life is built on the life to come. It's in heaven, the treasure that's there in Jesus Christ. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say it this way, and this is how I want us to end as we think about our lives. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded so, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured this cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can suffer well because Jesus suffered first. He is worth our lives. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And just in a moment of response to those in this room who are Jesus followers, I just in this moment would encourage you to even pray and ask God, what do I treasure most? Is there anything that I'm treasuring more than Christ? would not you lay that down before Him? Maybe you're walking through opposition, you're trying to share your faith, you're trying to live a godly life and you're facing rejection because of that. To ask God in this moment to give you the The courage, the faith to rest in Him, to shout His praises, to pray, to run to Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never been rescued. You've not experienced the saving grace of God and you can place your faith and trust in Him this morning. He died for you. I pray that we would be the kind of church who lays down our life the greatest treasure, Jesus. Lord, I ask that would be true of us this morning. We thank you that you gave your life for us. Pray we'd be the kind of church who lays down our lives for you. It's your name we pray. Amen. I encourage you now, if you would, just to stand and join us. This is an opportunity to pray. You can pray in your seats, to sing, to respond. Come down to the front as we respond to the gospel this morning.